0: Hello everyone, Dr. Anthony Creative Fourth here, also known as Dr. Finance. Welcome to the Dr. Finance Live podcast. We have Dr. Bernie Siegel here today, an amazing guest, one of the top physicians living in this world, according to sources. We're going to learn so much about him. He's got a different philosophy, and we're going to tie it to wealth. So we're going to find that link today. And let's get to learning about this amazing gentleman. Welcome, Dr. Bernie. How are you, sir? Thank you. I always tell people, don't ask me.
1: (laughs) No, what I try to train people to do is instead of saying, how are you? Um, Because everybody's wounded. I'm not kidding when I say that. One lady in Stop and Shop poked me in the back. I turned around. She had a bandage on her eye. She said, you're the only person in Stop and Shop who hasn't asked me what happened. That impressed me. See, she's got a visible wound. Everybody knows I can talk to her, you know, share my troubles. But what I said to her was, well, I know what happened. I have an abusive spouse also. And then she didn't know what to do with me. (laughs) I tell people when I walk into your store, post office, anything, say, you're looking very well today. And it makes me feel better. And everybody in the store is smiling, wondering, why didn't they say that to me? Um, But. Let me give you one more, because when they say, how are you today? I often say I'm depressed. I've run out of my antidepressant. My doctor's away on vacation, so I can't refill my prescription. What impressed me the first time I said that was how many people offered me their antidepressants from pocketbooks and pockets and everything. It blew my mind. But the other day in the post office for the first time ever, I got poked in the back after I said I'm depressed. I turned around and the woman behind me said, I'm a psychiatrist. I specialize in depression. Here's my card. Maybe I can help you. And I bust out laughing. And then everybody's wondering, why is he being rude and laughing? I said, look, folks, I'm kidding. I'm a doctor. I'm not depressed. And then they only knew. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, everybody got the message and the post office knows I'm a performer, you know, so whenever I come in, they want to know, what are you going to do today? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Bernie. So I have a lot of questions for you today and I, I want to try to get in, in on the right time. Cause I want to respect ahead. your time. So we got about an hour or so, um, about 20 questions, maybe two minutes each, but before I even do that, I would like to get an overview of yourself. Can you tell us a little about your story maybe in a few minutes?
1: Well, I've had an incredible story. Let's put it that way. Um, First of all, my mother was very sick with hyperthyroidism and told not to become pregnant. It could kill her. Um, But she did anyway to do her mother a favor and provide a grandchild. Um, She couldn't survive a cesarean section. So after a week or two of labor, they finally pulled me out. My mother said they handed me a purple melon not a child and literally i don't know if i would have survived if i didn't have a grandmother because they were hiding me so people wouldn't get upset seeing this battered kid and i said then how did i make it if nobody's massaging me holding me loving me you know because in the family album all you see is a picture of a covered carriage and i figured oh i must have been sleeping because nobody told me any of this till I was an adult. And then my mother told me this story and then I had medical knowledge and I could think about it and work it out. But um, she said, oh, my mother took you, poured oil all over you and pushed everything back where it belonged four and five times a day. Wow. So then I realized I was the most loved kid on the planet. My grandmother's loving me every few hours And at age 50, when I had my first massage, not my first massage, but my first massage by a woman, I became that infant again because I had a shaved head, her hands, soft hands, oil on my bare head like an infant. When I opened my eyes, feeling so wonderful, the room was filled with people. I said, What the hell is going on here? I'm getting massaged. (laughs) The husband who had been massaging my wife said, We thought you had a heart attack or stroke. You you weren't here. We couldn't talk to you. I said, yeah, I became an infant again. And I explained to them. But those are things that have changed me. So I know about body memories. Um, When I was four years old, I almost choked to death on a toy. I had a near-death experience. When I was in my 50s and very busy, one of my friends said to me over the phone, why are you living this life? Because of how busy I was. And I went into a trance and had a past life experience. Um, And it was incredible, the emotions, all the things I learned about who I am, what happened. So I keep saying I I haven't had a normal life that most people have, uh, because all these things keep happening. And when I was doing a meditation I didn't believe in at a workshop, I met an inner guide, we were told. And he said his name is George, and he was dressed rather strangely. But I was disappointed that it wasn't Moses or Abraham or Jesus. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> but I realized later, as I was out, had written books and was lecturing, that I was talking, but I was not saying anything that I had planned. It was coming from like another source. And I would just stand there and talk. And one evening, somebody came up after I spoke. And so the first person said, That was better than usual. I heard you before. I agreed with you. The second person said, There was a man standing in front of you for the entire lecture. So I drew his picture for you. And this was at a spiritual center called Mercy Center. I don't think there's any coincidence it happened there. And then the second time, <clears throat> a year or two later, I was speaking at a Christian funeral at that same place. And as the funeral was leaving, a healer named Alga Worrell, and she's written many books about her mystical experiences, came over to me and said, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, why are you asking me that? I spoke at a Christian funeral. No, there's a rabbi standing next to you. And then she described George in, with every detail. And I knew why I didn't understand why he was dressed that way. You know what I mean? Because it wasn't a normal routine. It's, it's related to our religion. And uh, from then on, I rely on George and he prepares things, does things. Um, it's just amazing. I've heard voices my life time. Um, and I mean that literally a voice talking to me and I've written about many of these experiences which has made an amazing difference in the things I would do or understand and I know now that's George and that he saved my life too when I was choking as a child on a toys that I had put in my mouth imitating some workmen in our house who were holding nails in their mouth and uh, I left my body uh, I was happy to be free of pain because it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, the chest and abdomen, all these muscles trying to suck in air. And um, and I must say, as a four-year-old, and most four-year-olds tell you the same thing. Oh, boy, I found it interesting to be dead. I, I would have preferred being dead, but I didn't want to upset my parents. And um, when I didn't die, because... Uh, George did the Heimlich maneuver and all the pieces came flying out. The first words out of my mouth, I never forget it, were, who did that? I had said, God, I prefer being dead. I know it will upset my parents, but I prefer being dead. It's so interesting because I can see, I can hear, I can think. And I yelled, who did that? And then my mother came running in.
0: (laughs) Well, so so Bernie, um, let's take this chronologically. So you're born in Brooklyn, yes, New York, right? Okay, and and, uh, you went to to medical school, and uh, where at? And um, uh, what's it?
1: Cornell University is in Manhattan. Uh, Not that I was still living in New York because my parents moved out, but um, I went back there to go to to medical school. Yeah, in
0: in Manhattan. And what what made you decide to become a a surgeon? And what kind of surgeon were you
1: originally? Well, I like saying a very good one. But um, I did a lot of children's surgery, what's called pediatric surgery, as well as adult surgery. You know, everything from hernias to cancers. But with the kids, you were dealing with genetic defects. You know, they'd be born without parts of their body functioning. And so you'd have to reconnect things and... You know, fix them up, and um, and I really felt that I didn't get into my past life. I killed with a sword in a past life. I was an Irish knight, and um, I really felt I became a surgeon to heal people with a sword. You know, a knife, Um, and it was so. It was an important and big part of my life, but the, the the problem with it that I learned and with most doctors because you you tell medical students draw yourself working as a doctor over 90 percent don't have a patient in the picture they're sitting behind a desk with a diploma on the wall you know and so it's painful to take care of people and the suicide rate in doctors is higher than the general population because we're not taught how to deal with the pain Mm -hmm. And that's the part I was struggling with. And I would heal myself at home by painting portraits because I, I loved painting as a child. So I found, and I say this to everybody, do something that make you makes you lose track of time and you won't get older. I mean that literally. And you don't feel pain. You're in a trance state. So you don't feel any aches or pains or age or anything. And I found that when I operated on people, I could stand there for hours and have no problems. Or if I painted a portrait, I could stand for hours when I had a back injury. And I I wasn't even aware of it till I stopped. But when all our pets and kids got tired of posing for me and ran out of the house one night, I said, I'll put up a mirror and I'll paint myself. And I did. And I painted myself as if I were in the operating room with a cap, a mask, and a gown on. And I didn't think, that's sick. You know, nobody knows it's you, it's not your portrait, but it took me a while to learn what I was supposed to, you know, from that painting. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the first one because I went to her workshops to get help. And I drew a picture for her and the first thing she said to me was, what are you covering up? I said, what are you talking about? She said, you used a white crayon on a white piece of paper. <laughs> you don't need the white crayon, you know, to make snow on a mountain. It's already white. <laughs> and, and then I realized that the painting is me covered up. And I now call that painting my cover-up because of all the <laughs> trouble I was having dealing with all my feelings and what was going on inside me. And my wife, you know, when she read my journal, which I forgot to hide one night, she said, There's nothing funny in it. I said, My life isn't funny. What are you talking about? She said, Well, let me tell you some stories you're telling us at the dinner table that get us laughing. And those are things that happened at the hospital that made me laugh, but I never put them in my journal. And I'm rereading a journal I wrote from 1996. And it's amazing, the feelings, the emotions, all the things that um, I was going through. And she got me on the right path, you know, to not forget the good things that happen in your life and put them in there, not just all the terrible things that happened.
0: But so, D- Dr. Bernie, how did you get into uh, the holistic side of all this? Like your, your real well, calling I, that you eventually I, I, took off.
1: With. I was looking to help
0: myself with the pain
1: of being a doctor. So I was going to workshops and at one workshop where it was basically how to help cancer patients. I thought, Oh, I'll go there. Cause maybe I can help people in other ways, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was the, this has blew my mind. I was the only doctor of 150 people. <laughs> you know, and that's by Dr. Carl Simonton who had written a book, Getting Well Again. I thought this is four doctors and I'm the only one there. But my patients, when I didn't realize what a compliment was, they didn't run and sit in other parts of the room to stay away from their doctor. They all came and sat around me in circles. And one of them, a young woman, and I just wish I had kept track of her. I said to her, what are you doing here? Why'd you come? She said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. Those closing words changed my life. Well, I changed my life, but her words directed me. I'll teach people how to live. I don't have to be a failure if I can't cure a disease. I can help them to live. Then my next awakening, I said to my secretary, "Send out a hundred letters to the people, you know, our patients with cancer, to tell them I'm going to start a meeting to help them live." And I said, don't forget to put on it. It's only for the people who receive the letters so I don't get mobbed. <laughs> and then I saw the letter and she forgot to do that. And I, I was in a panic. I couldn't sleep. I thought, what am I going to do with three, 400 people show up? Mm-hmm. Well, I learned something. 12 women showed up for the first meeting. And I thought, I'm trying to help them live and they don't come. But I realized why. Well, what if I don't, you know, do it right. What if I don't live longer? Then I'm a failure again. And he asks you to talk about your feelings and answer questions and draw pictures. And I'm not an artist. What if I do it wrong? I couldn't believe people with life-threatening illnesses were afraid to help themselves, you know, because of the guilt that it would build if they didn't outdo expectations. But I learned that there's a survivor Personality and behavior, and when people didn't die when they were supposed to, they always has a story to tell you of what they did. And doctors see it as: see, if you had a life-threatening illness and you show up one day and your illness is gone, the doctor says, "Oh my goodness, you've had a spontaneous remission." <laughs> that's what doctors called it, and that's such a stupid word. <laughs> Why don't you say to the patient, "How come you didn't die when you were supposed to?" And then you learn they did something. And in Solzhenitsyn's book, that's why I often say to people, read fiction. You'll learn the truth. Because the fiction authors are observing life and writing about it, but they make up characters. So in the book, Cancer Ward*, Solzhenitsyn talks about one of the men saying, hey, look what I found in this book. There are cases of self-induced healing. Not recovery through treatment, but actual healing. And the symbol he used, it was as though a rainbow-colored butterfly fluttered out of the great open book. When I read that, I thought, he knows everything I've learned. See? It's self-induced. You're giving your body a message. Why a rainbow-colored butterfly? You create a harmony, a rainbow, because every color is an emotion. And what is a butterfly a symbol of? How do you get out of a cocoon? You're starting as a caterpillar, you gotta break your way out, spread your wings. You know, and and that's what these people were doing. They were busting out of their cocoons and starting new lives and amazing things were happening. And that's when I began to learn to say to people I met who I thought were dead, um, you know, they'd show up at at a lecture or I'd meet them on the street And they'd say, yeah, I, you know, what's the point? What all the doctors were telling me and, and not me, but, you know, other doctors that they had. And, um, I realized they always had a story about what they did. It could be moving, buying a new house somewhere, you know, getting a dog, stop being a lawyer and start playing your violin. Um, But it was a rebirth. And then their body got the message. I love living. Yeah. And some people literally, as one woman did, she hated her body because she had polio as a kid. Then developed another neurological disease. And she said, I don't want to die hating my body. So I laid down naked in front of a mirror and loved myself inch by inch, starting at the toes and going up to the top of my head every day. And she went into complete remission. And there were multiple stories like that. You know, people left their troubles to God and their disease disappeared. You'd say, how the hell does that happen? But it's the peace that came into their body. And when you say that, it's you're changing your chemistry. See, <clears throat> Monday morning, we had more heart attack, strokes, suicides and illnesses because how people feel on Monday. And one student called me, he said, I want to do my thesis with actors. I want to get them to act in comedies and tragedies and draw their blood and show the difference it makes. My professor thinks I'm crazy. Why should it make a difference? They're only acting. Could you talk to him? I said, sure, I agree with you. I'll talk to him. So he gave the kid permission to do it. And sure enough, what did he show? Uh, What he had them act was, you know, a comedy routine and then immune function went up, stress hormone levels go down. Then in the tragedy, the man murders her husband and they meet each other. And then boom, immune function goes down, stress hormone levels go shooting up. And the professor was impressed. But that's what we're doing. So I, I, doctors would say to me, why do you blame your patients? I said, what the hell are you talking about? You keep saying to them, what's going on in your life? What has happened recently? I said, that's not blaming them. It's getting them to look at why are you sick now? You know? Again, you have twin sisters. Does one get breast cancer and the other doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. How come? They're twins, identical twins. (laughs) Um, And the question I always say to an audience, who do you think is more likely to get the cancer? The submissive girl who's making mommy and daddy happy or the devil of a sister who's out having a wonderful independent life and everybody votes for the good girl, you know, who's giving up her life to make mommy and daddy happy. So live your authentic life. And what most people with life-threatening illnesses come up with is let your heart make up your mind. And they put signs up in their kitchens, you know, so that they pay attention to feelings. And again, the psychiatrists understand this better than the oncologists and cardiologists. You have a disease, you're expecting to die, you go to see a psychiatrist to help you deal with it. They help you get your life in order and you don't end up dying. And then the psychiatrists end up, this came a lot with the AIDS epidemic, realizing that there were many who did very well, and they wrote articles about immune-competent personalities. I'd say the same thing with COVID, you know, who dies, who doesn't. Uh, And it's a lot to do with the person. And when you understand that, you understand there is survivor personality, and you can teach people how to survive. And it's not blaming them if they don't outdo expectations. It's giving them, you know, more techniques, more tools to work with and more ways to find hope. And that's, those are the things I would share with people. And boy, they give you a lot of thanks. So Dr. And Bernie, oh, I'm sorry. I don't get, this, because you're with time, nobody's against success. So my patients at the hospital were called Siegel's crazy patients. But that became a compliment <laughs> after a couple of years because they realized these people do better than everybody else. They may be crazy, but they're a pleasure to take care of. So if a patient acted in a crazy way and I saw they saw my name in the chart, they knew, oh, that's okay, it's a crazy patient. And this is a simple example that the uh, radiation oncologist at Yale called me, said, Bernie, I thought my radiation machine was broken. This woman has no side effects, no reactions. And I said to her, after I saw your name in the chart, how come you don't have any side effects or reaction? She said, I get out of the way. I let it go to my tumor. <laughs> so the oncologists who used to tell me I'm a nutcase and don't know what I'm doing, I'm not a psychiatrist. I might make people feel worse and die sooner. They began to be very happy with my crazy patients. And as one said to me, Bernie, this is a woman who came to me when her doctor told her she had four months to live. And uh, a relative told her, go see Dr. Segal. He makes people well all the time. So I sent her over to one of my oncologist friends. He said, I agree with her doctor. She's got about four months to live. But I know you and your crazy patients. So I'll give her hope. <laughs> in six weeks, she was in complete remission. Wow. And I laughed at his note to me. It said, She's in complete remission. Isn't chemotherapy wonderful?
0: <laughs> yeah. I have to get that jab at her.
1: <laughs> no. Yeah, which he had said to me with a type of leukemia she had, he didn't find there was much that he had to offer her. So he agreed with our doctor.
0: So, Dr. Bernie, how did you get into becoming a New York Times bestselling author and all these amazing books? I mean, at what point did you leave the surgery?
1: The only C I got in college was in creative writing. I never expected to write a book. As I said, I was an artist, a visual person. But one night somebody came up to me and said, you know, you're running around speaking everywhere all the time. Why don't you write a book? Save your time and trouble. I said, because I'm not a writer and I don't think I'll ever write a book. Well, God took care of that. That fellow talked to other people and they got a group together, including a writer and publishers and everything else. And so they told me all this. I said, well, then I'll talk, I'll put it on tape and then they can work with it and write. So I literally sat down in front of a recording machine for hours and hours and hours. Like I'm talking to you, you know, it's like George was talking. <laughs> he said everything. And then Love, Medicine
0: and Miracles got written. See? Oh, you, you actually you did an audio first and then yes. you wrote yeah. it. Wow, that's a great trick. I like that. And then I'd reread
1: the writing and so would my wife because I got a kick out of her because she'd say, honey, doesn't sound like you. So we would correct what he wrote. So it became my book because I was, you know, speaking it and somebody else was typing it out.
0: Yeah, that, that is awesome. I, I like that, uh, Dr. Bernie. You know, a lot there's a lot of ghostwriters out there and they'll write books for people. And it's really not them, but it's somebody else. And mm-hmm. that kind of as, as a writer, when I read people's books like that, I get disappointed when I find out there was a ghostwriter behind it because I'm like, yeah. I got so attached to that person. I realized it's somebody else. I don't even know who they are. Well, you actually well, sat there and, and, and went through the process. On many of my
1: books, you know, it says like written with, I don't remember what they put in. I mean, somebody will help me because they're writing it, you know, physically. Yeah. But you though. I had to say, yeah, because we'll talk, they'll record it, and then they work on it and we re-edit it and everything else. So, And as I said, and this, my wife is a good editor because she knows what I sounded like. Um, and she would say, Bernie, this isn't good. You know, you got to change this. Um, And I would do that because we worked together. She died almost four years ago. um, um, And and so now I, what I've learned, I'd say what the key is, my intellect can turn off. I'm not just thinking now, like I did in college, Mm. why the writing was so unattractive. Now, (laughs) I can express my feelings, too. So I don't have trouble writing now. It's it's like I once said, write a letter to everyone. Because that was from a story I read where an author tells his assistant, you're a good writer. The kid said, I've never written anything. (laughs) The letter on your desk to your father. He said, that's just a letter to my father. He said, all right, then write a letter to everyone. See, if somebody had told me that years ago, I would have understood what I needed to do to let the feelings out, write the letters, stop thinking. And so now I'm talking to everyone when I'm writing, if you know what I mean. It's, it's not just coming from my head. It's coming from my heart.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bernie. All right. So, Dr. Bernie, I want to get into the books a little bit, but figure about one to two minutes for each question. Um, so let's let's talk about your books. How many books did you write? Uh, What are their names? And how does it feel to be a New York Times bestselling author?
1: Well, there are about, I think there are 19 books. Um, it, It was, I'd say, thrilling to see the book on, you know, the New York Times bestselling list. And also what that led to, well, two things. One, sitting next to me is one of several magazines because I began to get interviewed. But across the top of the New York magazine, it says, interview with the controversial Dr. Siegel. (laughs) And that was the hard part because you get a phone call from Oprah Winfrey. He says, hey, would you like to be on my show? Phil Donahue, would you like to be on my show? Oh, you're on Oprah? Yeah. Oh, wow. I I mean, she liked the book. But, but let me tell you what she did to make it a, a traumatic show. See, I go there thinking she's interviewing me. And there are five or six doctors sitting there telling me what an idiot I am. Oh, man. You know, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's not scientific. You're crazy. And the show, you know, got a big audience because there was all this interaction, you know. Yeah controversy drain the life out of me to sit there for an hour having everybody yelling at you <laughs> and that's not the audience the audience would be nodding their head agreeing right. with me and these five doctors sitting next to me who were telling me i'm an idiot and i don't understand what i'm talking about and, blah, blah, blah. and that's why i became a storyteller because if you try to convince them from studies they would criticize the studies that's poorly controlled that was a <laughs> lousy journal that was in <laughs> So I would tell stories and they couldn't deny the story, but it didn't threaten them. And um, the thing I loved, I have to say, um, and I'm thankful to Oprah, was when I got invited to Phil Donahue, I went with three of my patients who had cancer, three women. We get there, you know, big studio, and I start to head up on the stage. He says, no, Bernie, I want you to sit in the audience. I want the three women with cancer on the stage. Mm. And boy, did I love that. And I thought, he knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) They're my teachers. They're the survivors. They've taught me what to tell others and how to help others, you see. And as they say, that impressed me that he did that. And I still have his autographed photograph uh, sitting in my house in the living room so I can smile every (laughs) time I go past it. Um,
0: How many New York Times bestselling books do you have?
1: Oh, I I don't know if others. I I don't know. I can't go back all those years. I don't remember. (laughs) But I know the first book became number one in the, you know, nonfiction. What was that called? Love. Medicine and Miracles. Love, Medicine and Miracles. I wrote Peace, Love and Healing, How to Live Between Office Visits. I mean, it went on and on. And I've written, there's one called The Book of Miracles, uh, Animals, Love and Miracles. I mean, it's just the many things about life that we need to look at and understand. Um, Intuitive things, communicating with animals. I mean, you know, I could tell you stories forever, but we got people to send in stories too things that happen in their life that could then be publicized and to get other people understand this is true it's something you're capable of you know the self-induced healing and and so people um had a chance at being coached and helped and guided yeah I mean, my wife came up with the term. I didn't know what to call our support group. She said, honey, they're exceptional women because it was only 12 women who showed up. So we named them exceptional cancer patients. ECAP was the abbreviation. But it was because they were the teachers, the survivors. And that's why I was impressed with Bill that He realized they were the ones who were living the message.
0: So, Dr. Bernie, I, I really, uh, the more you talk, the more I feel connected with you. We're actually very similar in different industries. Um, in your specialty, you, you were considered very different. What I do in finance, the concepts I created are very, very different than what I taught as a professor for 10 plus years. I actually went this path because I didn't like what, what I'm teaching to students out of these textbooks. It's not connected with the real life experience of finance. So I want to ask you a question in terms of your specialty. How did it feel to think different than your peers? How did it feel to be the one doing something different in the face of complete opposition? And that was a huge mountain hole, I'm sure, for you.
1: biggest thing is related to how you brought up that I grew up with love with parents who loved me and gave me mottos to live by things like do what makes you happy let your heart make up your mind you know the same thing um god is redirecting you something good will come of this we're here to help other people so i didn't realize other people didn't grow up with those messages you know they grew up with you're a failure you embarrass me uh And let me say this, too, a study that was done. Harvard students were asked, did your parents love you? If they said no, 98% had suffered a major illness by middle age. Wow! If they said yes, 24% had suffered that illness. So, you know, that's a big part of it. So my parents were never saying, you know, we want you to make money, you know, impress the neighbors, do whatever I wanted to do. Because um, my father thought being a doctor wasn't particularly, you know, any way that he could be of help to me. So, but he didn't say no. Don't be a doctor, and so I wasn't worried what other people thought. So, I'll be a doctor, and it. it I mean, I was lucky in the sense of parents, as I say, who were well educated by the difficulties of their lives and what they went through as kids. They had loving parents, but well, my father's father died at the tuberculosis, leaving a wife and six kids with nothing. And yet my father said that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. My father dying when I was 12 years old, I said, what are you talking about? He said, it taught me what life was about and what was important. So he was always helping people. And I can remember saying to him, because I got married when I graduated from college, and I didn't have any money. Um, And I said to him, I feel guilty asking you for help, because if you can help me, I can get married. And he said, if I don't want to help you, I'll say no. And that is a quality of survivors. Mm -hmm. They're asked to do help for friends or relatives. They don't want to, they say no. They they don't spend their life doing what they don't want to do. So he said, I'll help you. And he helped me and, um, and taught me that really, he's taught me about forgiveness because he never worried if people paid him back. And I've lent some people quite a few thousand dollars. Uh, you know, when friends tell you, oh, here's somebody who really needs you. And, uh, so I said, okay, you know, they'll send you a letter saying I'll pay you back. And, blah, and so it's very reassuring. You lend them money and you never hear from them again. <laughs> and I learned to be like my father. Say, they're not hurting me. I'm not bitter and resentful. I hope they've had a good life. Yeah, well, let me, I mean, literally tell you, just got a memory back. My wife and I were speaking out of town. It was around Thanksgiving time. We left our room and there was a just, I had a sense, there's a weird guy standing in the hallway. I mean, something about him made me uncomfortable. We were going to get dinner, so we got on the elevator. Because I was thinking, why would somebody stand in the hallway in a hotel? You go in the room, you get on an elevator, you do something. Well, when we got back to our room, it was robbed. Wow. And I realized with a key, he had opened the door. He didn't break in. So I knew he must have had somebody worked in the hotel, knew what was in our room, you know, and he got the key, went in. So I called the police. And if they had listened to me, they would have known who he was because it had to be somebody who had been in our room and knew what was there to steal. Mm. But anyway, I was bitter, resentful. Uh, The only thing I was happy about, he didn't steal all my papers that I had collected, you know, to use for lectures. And then Christmas came. And suddenly I thought, wow, what if he used money from the stolen objects to get Christmas presents for his kids? The next thing you know, I'm smiling, thinking, oh, that's great. Oh, I don't mind the fact that he robbed our room. (laughs) Now he's got, his kids are feeling better and happier and wonderful. You know, people would say, what are you nuts? You probably have got drugs. But when that image came into my head, I was free. You know, I was no longer bitter resentful. And that plus my father's ability to forgive and teach me about that. uh, Yeah. So I lend people money. What hurts me more is that they don't call me up and say, hey, I'm sorry, you know, and, and, and stay my friends. That's what I'd be happy with. Be my friend. Don't hide away from me and never answer an email or a phone call. But I've learned. Goodbye. And the biggest therapist for me about forgiveness was our rabbit. Because our house was like a zoo. You know, one of my articles in the book Love Animals and Miracles is the Seagull Zoo Um, and how much the animals teach you about love and forgiveness and everything else. I Brought this rabbit into the house um, and. um, The veterinarian said, be very careful, you know, you have so many other pets, they may attack the rabbit, so keep them all separated to begin with. So for a week or two, I kept the rabbit protected. And then one day I went out of the house and I thought, hey, you left the pet door open. So they're not separated. I said, yeah, but they've known each other for a couple of weeks, so it should be OK. Well, when I got home, it wasn't OK. The rabbi, the rabbi, the rabbit was <laughs> uh, by the dog. You could see where he grabbed her, bit her, you know, like he would shake a toy. And uh, he broke my heart. Anyway, we get veterinarian care for her and protect her. And, you know, the weeks go by, everybody knows each other, she's recovered. And then I go out one evening to get her into the house because I worried it's a fenced-in yard, but I didn't want predators climbing the fence and, you know, attacking her. And I can't find her. I'm calling her name. She was a black fur. Her name was Smudge. I'm yelling, Smudge, Smudge, Smudge. I knew she didn't like coming in, but I couldn't find her anywhere. So I gave up after a while. And there's the dog who was named Furfy. He's a ball of white fur. And I went over to pet him. And as I start to pet him, I notice his black fur under him. <laughs> I pick him up. <laughs> and funny. there was Smudge hiding under him. <laughs> so I couldn't find her and bring her in the house. How about that? <laughs> they were the best of friends. And that taught me about forgiveness. You know, in a sense, he threatened her life. He wounded her. And look what happens a few weeks later. (laughs) They're lying there together doing each other, you know, a favor. And uh, so between my father and Smudge, I've learned about forgiveness. And um, they say the animals teach you better than people.
0: That's an awesome, awesome story. Thank you, Dr. Birdie. Appreciate that. Um, All right. So next question, maybe a minute or two. Is there such a thing as a coincidence?
1: No. No. Jung said it this way. The future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So, and let me give you an example. Um, my wife and I got had jobs as a day camp in Westchester. She was the head counselor because she was going into teaching. And I was the the bottom counselor in the boys' first grade group because I was just looking for a job, you know, and I was still in college. And one day I was standing at the pool watching the kids, and I said to her, you know, it's nice that they leave the pool open at night. So, you know, we live nearby and come over and take a swim. And she said to me, are you asking me for a date? (laughs) And I wasn't because she's this beautiful young lady and who am I? Nobody. So I knew she'd never go out with me. So, but, you know, I'm not a dumbbell. So when she said, are you asking me on a date? I thought, what I got to lose? I said, yeah, yeah. She said, all i right, I'll, I'll go swimming with you tonight. And so that started our life, and we end up married because of that so-called coincidence. Now, when I had my past life, who do you think was in that my wife and i'll just tell you the gory. i'm not going to detail it but i killed her in my past life i cried for three or four hours because it was just so people understand it was as if i was watching a movie with myself in it i went into a trance flying across country and had this whole past life vision come up in front of me. Um, And I'm not gonna get into details, but I I saw a therapist because of it, and I learned about myself. Um, Well, I'll tell you the punchline because I went to the therapist, I said, I was asked by my lord to kill the neighbor's daughter because of what he was doing to our land. And he immediately said, the Jungian therapist said, Bernie, you hear what you're saying? I said, what do you mean? He said, my Lord, I said, it's the Lord of the castle. Yeah, my Lord. He said, no, Bernie, it's your Lord. You need to go and relive this. And I did, because I questioned faith of Abraham and Jesus and others, you know, Mm -hmm. because look what God asked them to do. Why didn't they say no? Or or why did Abraham say, don't sacrifice my son. Take me, leave the kid alone. You know what I mean? That there were other options. So I always said, if I were Jesus, I would have jumped off the cross because that would impress the hell out of people. Um, but when he said to me, you have to go home and relive this. And when I went home and did relive it and he and said, well, you killed the neighbor's daughter. I said, all right, I'm going. He said, no, I don't want you to kill her. I needed to know you had faith in me. I want you to bring her and her father here so we can resolve this problem. <laughs> oh, and I felt that my wife and I getting married in this life solved that problem. See, we united our families. There was nothing to fight over anymore. Mm-hmm. What they fought over was our gift, the property, the land, and so forth. Yeah. So everything was solved by our coming together. And I don't think any of that is a coincidence or accident or because it was so real and so incredible and detailed. It was unbelievable. Um, And again, uh, those are the things that made me a believer. Well, even I have a shaved head, by the way. Um, And again, no coincidences. I mean, I, this was in the 1970s. We got five kids who were already embarrassed by my behavior because I'm such a character. You know, I, I go into a Chinese restaurant. and I order a pizza. So <laughs> Kids stopped eating out with us and saved me money. But, uh, but the restaurants got to know me because I'd call up the pizza place and say, yeah, I, I want to order some Chinese food. And they said, oh, Dr. <laughs> Siegel, what is it you want? You know, they all knew who I was because I'm this nutty person. Um, now I forgot what I was talking about. Is George. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the. Old head. Oh, yes. So I told my wife and the kids, I'm going to shave my head. Oh, God, you embarrassed us already. Don't do that. And the barber said, your kids are going to kill me if I, I said, do it. And I'll go on vacation. So he shaved my head. And then again, reading Jung, he said, the reason monks shave their head is to uncover their spirituality. And when I read that, I thought, wow, if I'd only understood that, I didn't need to shave my head. I needed to uncover my spirituality, you know, my faith. The same thing the Jungian therapist said to me. You're saying my Lord, you know, to me, it was the Lord of the castle. (laughs) Wasn't God. You know what I mean? And but all these people clarified for me what I needed to know about myself. And to do that.
0: yeah. Thank you, Dr. Bernie. I appreciate that. All, all right. And by the way, you you still shave your head for the same reasons? It's me. I don't know
1: how to put it any other way. So, yeah, I don't mind some hair growing in, you know, but <laughs> but I, I, I just shave it because that's me. You know, uh, my face and my head, same time. Boop, boop, boop. I just do it when I'm in the shower. So it's simple and easy. Uh, you know it's not a full head of hair um, and 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 then it became the style look how many more guys are walking around with shaved heads now you
0: know yeah i got to say you you definitely look great for for having a shaved head i mean yeah. you you need the right kind of uh, structure to do it if i shaved it it would look really odd but was, <laughs> <laughs> i have some kind of dip going on but yeah you, you, and, you, i mean i and let me say that i was losing my
1: hair you know i was starting to go uh, So it wasn't that I had this glorious head of hair and I shaved it off, but I'll leave you with one more point because when you embarrass your children regularly, they end up being grateful for it because as they got older, they'd come home from school and literally from work, even from law office and say, hey dad, thank you. I said, what are you thanking me for? I didn't do anything today. Oh, yes, you did. I did something crazy at school today. And the only thing the teacher said was, you know who his father is? (laughs) But they didn't get punished. Uh And my son said in his law office one day, he heard them say, well, you know who his father is? And here he's a lawyer, you know, (laughs) he's getting away with something because I'm his father. So what do you expect? He's got my genes. What do you expect him to behave like? Yeah, so funny. ultimately they became grateful for not having a normal father.
0: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Bernie. OK, okay. Dr. Bernie, maybe in 30 seconds or so, what, what are your tips for living longer? If you could boil down, uh, you know, summarize right. your greatest tips for living longer.
1: Pay attention to your feelings to let you decide what to do. Don't let others impose a life on you. You know, that we can't be proud of a violinist. We want a lawyer for a son. Don't let that happen. Um, The other, as I said, do what feels right. Realize troubles are God's redirections. And I heard that from my parents and it drove me crazy. But I realized how many. Well, let me give you a quote from my friend Norman Vincent Peale. He said what his mother said was, Norman, if God slams one door further down the corridor, another will be open. So you kept having hope you'd say, all right, let's see what I call them. Spiritual flat tires. There are people alive today who they were late getting to work on September 11th. You know, Mm -hmm. they were angry at the traffic that I have to go drop my kid at school. (laughs) I'll be late to work. And then they realized it saved my life.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's keeping that kind of open mind,
0: um, that was me, by the way, but I I, uh, I was really? supposed to have a job that uh, one of the, one of the offices on the top floor. I never took it out of college, and uh, came back to Philadelphia, and I was so angry. And when that happened, I'm like, "Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that is that is unbelievable." But
1: no coincidence. No
0: coincidences. Yeah.
1: And and so I say it's it's following, you know, that rhythm. We're here to help people, but you decide how to do the helping. Um, You know, it's not just to accumulate things. It's to accomplish things and help people. And uh, using difficulties as redirections. Learning how to say no. Because, again, if somebody says to you, family or friend, I want you to do something for me. I need your help. But you don't want to do it. The correct answer is to say no. Mm -hmm. That's healthy for you. Now, as I said, if you decide you want to do it, that's not what I'm saying. But if you don't want to do it, then say no. Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. So, again, do what makes you happy. See? And you can decide to be happy, too. So you don't have to say, oh, I got to quit my work. I got to get a divorce. I got to move. I got." You can change your attitude, thing. So I always say to people, change your attitude or change your life. And when you do that, then things begin to, to happen for you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bernie. That, that's definitely wise words. Um, is, okay, so next question, sir. Is it possible for humans to live forever? And should they want to? Maybe a minute or so. <laughs> Depends on what's going on.
1: Um I mean, my wife and I had such a, a love and such a relationship. I mean, it's uh, that's we could have a whole other program. <laughs> yeah, totally I'm hitting me. you with some very deep I, questions. <laughs> exactly. Thank I, you. I have um, wrote an article that we don't die. Uh-huh. Yeah, my wife hasn't stopped communicating with me since she died. Okay, um, I hear her sounds in the bedroom when I'm alone at night. The first few weeks, she used to kiss me goodnight with a breeze, blow out a candle, and I'd hear that puff, and then I'd feel a breeze on my face. And I'm lying alone in the bedroom, and I knew it's my wife that's kissing me goodnight. I find a dime and a penny. We were married on the 11th. I have found so many dimes and pennies in bizarre places. When I was making the bed, way down like under all the sheets and blankets, they were pulled out of my hands. It it was a bizarre feeling, totally mystical. I'm going to pull them tight across the bed, and they go flying the other way, and there's a dime and a penny lying on the mattress.
0: I'm getting goosebumps. (laughs) How did I get
1: them? Well, I get them too. Yeah, it's totally bizarre. And um, you know, I just let our kids know that she's around doing all these things. I mean, I hear the voice say, go to the bird bath and clean it. And it's in a wooded area near our house. I dump it out. There was a dime and a penny in it. Now, you can't explain that. Oh, and my cell phone disappeared. And the kids, a couple of them came over to try to help me. We call it. We don't hear it ringing. We're searching the house. And finally, one of them, about the second or third time he'd searched, said, I give up. I'm going home. <laughs> Five minutes later. I hear a knock on the door. Hey, dad, what? I heard mom's voice say, go look in the chair that's sitting on the edge of the woods. That's where the cell phone is. And he went up there and there was the cell phone sitting in this, you know, old outdoor chair. And I don't even remember ever sitting there. So I don't know how the hell the cell phone got there. I can't imagine it falling out of my pocket into this chair. But anyway, the kid came in said, here's your cell phone. I heard mom's voice tell me where to look for it. And I went and there it was. And um, I just accept those things. I don't deny them. I mean, life is a mystery. Um, So I know. And see people learned I wasn't a normal doctor. So I would hear more mysteries. People who had heart lung transplants he say, could you come up and help me? The other people think I'm crazy. It's like saying to me, I know you're crazy too, so would you come and talk to me? And this woman, she wrote a book called A Change of Heart by Claire Sylvia. She said, I woke up after heart-lung transplant, and they said, um, would you like something to eat? She said, yeah, chicken McNuggets and beer. And then she said, I never had that. Where'd that come from? Well, to make a long story short, one night in her sleep, A young man shows up, said, we're together forever. And he told her his name. She told her friends. They looked up all the obituaries, got in touch with the family, and discovered his heart and lungs were in her. And he died in a motorcycle accident. And she had taken a motorcycle ride on his birthday. Something she had never done in her life. So, again, those are things that I know we don't die. I've gotten involved more and more because of my past life and my near-death experience with a group called IANS, International Association for Near-Death Stories. These are people who have had near-death experiences, so they're not afraid to listen to others. But I had a patient of mine come in the office say, I realize you're not a normal doctor and I'm a mystic, so I, I asked for a message for you. These are her exact words from Frank. If I'd known it was this easy, I'd have bought the package a long time ago and not have resisted so much. A doctor friend whose first name was Frank had just died. I called his wife and she screamed. I said, I didn't call to upset you. She said, you're not upsetting me. That's what Frank said. Every time he left your meeting, I can't buy the package. And the mystic friend is named Monica. And she has brought me many, many messages and helped many patients of mine when family members have died. And nobody has ever called me and said, she's nuts. I mean, she gave me a message, but it can't be. Well, my wife died Friday morning. And, I mean, I went in thinking she was sleeping to wake her up, and that's when her cold hand, I knew she had died during the night. And I thought, I'm not going to tell Monica anything. Let's see what happens. Sunday morning, my phone rings. Ernie, a woman who was very lovely and sweet and who was an opera singer called, got in touch with me, and told me that Bobby's back with the family and everything's okay. And guess what my wife's mother was? A well-known opera singer. Wow. Now you tell me how does something like that happen? <laughs> that doesn't turn you into a mystic. What would,
0: you know? Well, Bernie, th- uh, you know, your answer to this question actually cancels out the second question. Should they want to should, should, should humans want to live forever? Right? Like,
1: well, do uh, in this sense, see our bodies don't. Mm-hmm. And that's why you go, you can call it heaven if you want. And, and, That's why listening to all these near-death stories, it's like you go to different grades. If you're a a murderer and you get to heaven, they put you in grade one, you know, and start again and learn. But if you've been, you know, Mother Teresa, you'll be in college, you know, you learn and, and they can provide you with a new body and a chance to be that spiritual person again. And uh, so, again, I know our consciousness recycles. That's why I say when you have that near-death experience, you can see, hear, feel, think. You just don't have a body. So you can say, all right, I want to be able to do things again. So assign me to a new body. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bertie.
1: There was a book written a few years ago called Oh, what was it? Um, Heaven is for real. This man's four-year-old son had a near-death experience. You know, he died in the hospital. They resuscitated him. And the boys, remember, this is a four-year-old, starts telling stories to his father about what happened when he was dead. And the father's thinking, this is nuts. But then the kid says, oh, I met my sister. Now, what this boy never knew was that he had a sister who had died before he was born. So he never heard about her or learned about her or anything else. Um, and here he tells the father he met his sister and he told the father, you know, who it was, that it was the sister that he had never met in life, but he met her in heaven. And that's when the father turned it into a book, Heaven is for Real, uh-huh. quite a few years ago. And, you know, and again, that's what changes people. When when it happens, you can't deny it. And uh, as much as doctors would yell at me, that's a story. Um yeah, but it's true. (laughs) Or once I recited some poetry, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. That's what a doctor yelled at me. (laughs) But I said, did it ever occur to you that the reason the poet wrote that is because he saw it in life? You know, he's not making it up. But it's so hard when people haven't experienced it. And a big part of the change was when doctors started having near-death experiences and Instead of saying, "Oh, it's electrical," you know, changes in my brain, blah blah blah, but they realized, no, it really is something. And then they wrote their own books about it, and then the shift begins to happen. So I've had many doctors write books and apologize to me for what they thought of me
0: before they or their family had a real problem. And speaking of doctors, Doctor Bernie, so what what are what are the problems? with the way the Western world practices medicine today. Can you maybe give a quick summary 30 seconds? You have to, as I said to
1: you, when I had this like 100 students in a medical school say, and I said to them, draw yourself working as a doctor. I almost fell over when I saw the pictures sent to me because I wasn't thinking what I would get. One picture had no human being in it, just instruments and computers. 98 had the student sitting behind a desk with a medical school diploma on the wall behind them and no patient. And one had the student standing in front of a lady in a wheelchair, handing her a tissue. Wow. That is a real doctor. He's helping her. Now. What's happening to the other 98, and believe me, I don't make up any of these stories, these all happened to me, is what Jung said, the diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient, for there the key thing is the story, for it alone shows human background and human suffering, and only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. Boom. When I read that, it was, yeah, you're right. So, This is what I try to get across to people, see? And that's why that woman's statement to me, I need to know how to live between office visits. Oh, okay. I don't have to cure your disease. I can help you live. And that's what you'll be thankful for. And of course, then you're more likely to get well too. Um, So those are the things that I've learned. And I read things that most doctors probably don't read, but we're trained in a mechanical way. And I don't see, I mean, the acceptance of the other aspects I'm talking about, uh, I'm not happy about. I'd like to get invited by more medical schools to speak to the students. I email my schools and others and say, hey, why don't you invite me to come? And yeah, when my book came out, a lot of students invited me to speak at their graduations. Hey. Um, The students were inviting me to be the graduation speaker, not not the faculty. Yeah. So that's the sad part, that they don't bring it in. And and what we're separating, maybe this is a better way of explaining it, is your head, you know, like the psychiatry aspect and your body, the disease aspect. When I wrote When I wrote articles and sent them to medical journals, it came back saying it's interesting, but it isn't appropriate for our journal. <laughs> Those about patients' dreams. I mean, we had a cat named Miracle. What was she named after? A lady's dream. A cat appeared and said, my name is Miracle. Here's how you should treat your cancer. She told her doctor. He said, all right, I'll do it. She's cured. <laughs> okay. But how could... How could a, a cat know what chemotherapies you should have? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In a dream. But these are things people weren't afraid to share with me. So I, I, anyway, I sent the, all these stories, drawings, um, and it came back saying interesting, but not appropriate. So I sent it to psychiatry journals, came back again with the exact opposite comment. Yeah, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know this. That's the part that drives you crazy about medicine. They, If you're going to be a psychiatrist, you don't have to learn about the body. If you're going to be a cardiologist, oncologist, you don't need to know about people's minds and heads and feelings. You're treating their, their organs and their body. But people are a
0: unit. Thank, thank you, Dr. Bernie. There's a book that.
1: written a few years ago called Uh, The Heart's Code by Paul Pearsall, how even the heart is like your brain and giving you messages. So, yeah, I tell my heart uh, when I think about it, hey, send love out to the body. I love you and let our body know I love it. And, um, you know, that we're working together to do things and stay alive. When I get tired of my body, those are my father's words. (laughs) I need to get out of here. My Mother said, help him out of bed. I said, he's talking about his body. But you see, again, his death was not a tragic event. It was a party. I said to him, you want to leave your body? He said, yeah. I said, when do you want to do it? Sunday afternoon. So we had a big party. He died laughing, looking so healthy, because my mother was telling stories about how they met, which included him losing the coin to us and having to take her out. So that started the whole laughter afternoon. And when the last person arrived, see again, consciousness, he didn't really know who's coming, who isn't coming. But when the last person came in and was announced, he took his last breath. And he died looking so damn healthy that nobody in the family was afraid of death after they saw that. And I thought he was gonna change his mind. That's what was worrying me because he was smiling, laughing, even though he's in a coma, he's still hearing people talk. And um, I thought he's gonna open his eyes and say, this is fun, maybe I'll go for another week. Uh, But I learned also to talk to people under anesthesia and they heard me and their bodies responded to it. I mean, literally, I could say to people, I'd like your pulse to be uh, 72 and it would go to 72 on the monitor. And the anesthesiologists were in shock. Wow. And here's one. Boy. See, if I keep talking, George remembers all these things.
0: Yeah, doc, Dr. Bernie, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I have to get going about 10, 10, 15 seconds. minutes.
1: <laughs> but I got a lot of questions. The for The patient's you. heart stopped. Uh-huh. And the anesthesiologist said, I'm calling for a Stretcher to send him to the morgue. And I yelled, John. It's not your time yet. Come on back. <laughs> His heart started beating, and he recovered completely. Wow! Words of the anesthesiologist were, "I like working with you."
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> that's awesome! I right, would well, thank thank you, Doctor Bernie. Um, I, I wish I had more time. I would definitely make a longer interview. Unfortunately, I made a um, commitment to a family member to that's pick fine. them up, so. Um, all right. So, what is what is your relationship to Deepak Chopra? I know you guys have done some forwards together. Well,
1: yeah, because he was being different years ago too. So it gave me a chance to talk to somebody, you know, who wouldn't tell me I'm a nutcase <laughs> or I'm controversial because he was learning things, and this I is. could laugh with him and have fun with him mm-hmm. because he spoke. You know, he spoke as somebody from India and had his own accent. (laughs) So he was on the stage for about an hour, an hour and a half. And then I followed him and I went up and I said, Oh, it is so nice to speak after Dr. Chopra. Oh, he left his consciousness here. So he is making me talk in this way that he is talking and, you know, he'd give me a look
0: from the audience. <laughs> he, he should <laughs> well, have talked using a Brooklyn accent. It would reverse yeah. the process. Oh, I know. That's why I see. <laughs> he had a sense of humor, too.
1: So we would bounce up and back like that. And the people would look and say, what kind of a nutcase is this guy? But, you know, you could do that with him and, and feel secure and, to- and talk to him and, and be secure. Where in so many other positions, you can't. And, and the hard part was when you're different. Yeah, it's hard to be accepted in the academic environment. So the people, you know, who agreed with me were the ones who had more trouble until times changed. That was your student, though, right? Deepak was your student? Well, no, he was up in uh, in Boston at Harvard. I mean, uh, we're both, and I'm in Connecticut. We were close by. So we did a lot of workshops together and, yeah, and helped promote each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bernie. Appreciate that. Is there a connection between health and wealth? I'm starting to make that bridge here, maybe a minute or less. Between health and what? Uh, health and wealth. So wealth, money, all that kind of stuff.
1: No, no. of people who win the lottery tell them it's the worst thing that ever happened to them (laughs) five years after they won because everybody gets into fights with them. Why don't you help me? Why don't you give me money? Why don't you, you know, I want a new house. You have a million dollars. Why don't. Yeah. They screw themselves up. Yeah. So for me, if I win the lottery and I do play it, but I have a reason. I want to start a charity, you know, and and do good things for people. Yeah, it isn't, uh, you know, make me uh, have a bigger car or you know more servants or something uh, or a mansion to live in. That's where I feel sorry for people when when they do it to impress everybody. But when you're doing it to help everybody then you've done something.
0: Thank yeah. you, Dr. Barry. And the other question I have related to that is, uh, well, actually, we'll get into the money stuff in just a second. Is life a game? Maybe 30 seconds or less. What is the game? <laughs> is, game? Is life a game? Is life a game?
1: I I suppose you could consider it that. Yeah, it's it's not about winning or losing. It's about participating. So I'd say in that way, it's a game, you know, to really get into it, enjoy it. And if you want to be immortal, love somebody. Yeah, William Soroyan, wonderful writer in his book, The Human Comedy, love is immortal and makes all things immortal. And originally in the book he wrote, While Hate Dies Every Minute. And then they edited that out. But he says, if you want to live forever, love somebody because you'll see him or her in the streets and the houses and all the things that are here out of love and for love for love is immortal and makes all things immortal. I like that
0: forever. Love somebody. Thank you, Dr. Bernie. All right. So I want to step into the realm of finance a little bit. This is the one thing i found that was very interesting. I did listen to a few of your interviews and actually your message um, is very similar to Napoleon Hill. I don't know if you read Napoleon Hill, but um, what is the relationship between what you teach and the general message of his book, Think and Grow Rich, specifically his 13 Steps to Riches? Now, I'm think i pretty confident you read the book, but if you didn't, that's okay. He actually teaches in their auto-suggestion, and he was one of the pioneers of the science of success. Um, So I don't know. Did you you know anything about that?
1: I've read about him. I can't remember if I've read his book. Honestly, I think I, and Grow Rich, it's called Think and Grow Rich. I I, I don't think I've read it. Um probably because if I saw the word rich, I might have, you know, <laughs> misinterpreted it. But I know about him and, and some of his messages. And and yeah, I'd say your thinking does make you grow rich.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's it, his general message. Basically, like if you it think what it, you
1: have, not what you don't have. You know, and so if you know what you have, you're a rich person. You know, I mean, it's like if I have three meals a day, I'm a rich person. If I have clothes on, I'm a rich person. Yeah, it doesn't have to be everything to impress all the neighbors. It's what life is about. So I'm a rich person. I have those things. And I've learned, I mean... I'm helping. We have, as I mentioned, five kids, uh, three out of the five financially. And, yeah, I could resent the fact that they need, you know, money um, or help. Or, and I'm not talking about just sending them to school. I'm talking about after they graduate and all kinds of things. But I've learned, thank God I can help them. That's a gift. You know, that I can do that for them and um, and not be bitter and resentful. Doesn't mean I don't try to keep it practical uh, because one of our sons knows a lot more about money than I do. So he helps me, you know, with taxes and other things, the oldest one. Um, And that also where you fit in the family often has a lot to do with finances and how you are treated and everything else. Um, Yeah, because. One of our children, the last four, two were twins. And one he came to me one day and said, I don't get 20% of your time. He didn't talk about money. He was just a kid. I don't get 20% of your time. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you got five children. You <laughs> each get 20%. I said, your brother's driving us out of our mind. So he gets 40%. You see, so he taught me a lot um, about life. I mean it. This kid has been a therapist for me because when I thought he was going to die of a bone tumor that showed up on an X-ray, he told me, "You're handling this poorly." Imagine a seven-year-old telling his doctor father, <laughs> "Handling this poorly." But again, who's rich? See because he said to me we want to have a nice day and go out and play and you're worried about what's going to happen next year it turned out he had a rare benign tumor when he had surgery and they removed it but boy did he teach me about living say who's rich yeah let's go out and have a nice day stop saying oh my god what's going to happen next year and so i'd say the same things with all of them and um you know to not measure because my sister This is something else. Boy, you bring up all these things. Um, She had three kids. I had five. Our parents, once a year, gave everybody a gift of money. The same amount to every person. So myself, my wife, our five kids, my sister, her husband, they're three kids. What do I hear from my sister many years later? Your family got more money than my family. It's not fair. I said, we each got the same amount. There are more people in my family. So, yeah, the family got more money, but each person didn't get more money. But she was so bitter and resentful. Uh, I mean, that was my sister. I mean, there's certain parts of her. She was a little devil and very clever. So I ended up giving her money to make her happy. I mean, I have to say she also had a heart, too, because when one of her kids died, she helped people who had children who had died. So there were the two parts of her, you know, Mm -hmm. she was the thinking person uh, who I called the devil, but also the one with the heart. And I say, you know, you need to look at money that way. You know, are you the devil who wants to make money for yourself or do you have a heart who wants to use the finances? Uh, you know, so your family isn't screaming at you when you win the lottery. They're saying, thank you. What a wonderful person you are to help us.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bernie. Appreciate that. All right, Dr. Bernie, maybe uh, 30. We got about six questions left. figure 30 seconds each. We can wrap this up. What are your favorite financial books, if any? Maybe two uh, or three?
1: I don't have a a favorite financial book. Yeah. I mean, I, I really read more spiritual books how to live, because that tells me how to deal with money, too.
0: Mm, I like that. Thank you, Dr. Bernie. And you are an entrepreneur, too. I mean, you opened up your own business going into writing books and speeches and all that stuff. You eventually.
1: Yeah, but what I don't do well, I don't have agents. And, and, you know, because so many people contact me, you know, about let me know your agents, you're this, you're that, you're this. I "I don't have all those things. (laughs) I said, I'm a senior. I didn't grow up with all this technology. I'm just trying to help people. So I'm not out there, you know, broadcasting about Siegel. I, I have do have some shows where I interview people so that we can share how to help the audience. You know, whether it's finances or health or anything else. i do always put the word out there to help people.
0: I yeah. love your mission, Dr. Bernie. That's 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 awesome. Appreciate Thank- that.
1: Yeah, when you get to heaven, by the way, there's an admission line because I'm on the board of directors there. I (laughs) was impressed the first day because when you get to the head of the line, they say, You're next. How do you want to be introduced to God? You want to tell me what you would say? I don't know. (laughs) I don't want to cause you trouble. All right. (laughs) But you see, when somebody said, I'm a New York lawyer, they said, Come back when you know who you are. The next person, little old lady said, I'm one of God's children. They said, come on in, ma'am. So when you feel that connection, say, not I'm a millionaire. Um, They say, come back when you know who you are. But when you can connect with God, with, what should I say, spirituality, then they say, come on in. So be God's right arm, you know, and, and that's what I say to God every day. I'd like to be your instrument. So what can I do today to, you know, help creation, make things better? And Thank I say God. to all those rich people, go out in nature. Yeah. You, know, you don't buy a tree. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can buy a tree and plant it. But it's, it's what it's teaching you, a tree. And that when do you show your beauty? When you realize, hey, my life is almost over. It's the fall. I'll get rid of this green <laughs> stuff and show my color and and spirituality. And
0: before I let go of the tree of life. So Speaking of is, green, Doctor Bernie, uh, do we need money to survive? Well, uh, maybe thirty seconds or less.
1: It, it, I'd say we don't need it if we worked out a system without it. If you know what I mean, you could <laughs> use time. Uh, you could say. I do things for other people, so I'm allowed to, you know, buy things with my time. Uh, So there are a lot of things that have value, but I don't think there's anything wrong with money. It's what you do with it that's the problem.
0: Absolutely. And speaking of that, is finance necessary for everyone? When I say finance, I mean the science of finance.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good idea for everybody to have a financial intelligence and know what they're doing um i had to, have to laugh because when i got married they said i'd never had any money anything and my wife wouldn't put my name on the checking account um i said if you love me you'll put it there i won't do anything but she waited a year or two <laughs> before uh, she connected me also but because she was practical a school teacher knew what you had to do you know to make things work and and um and so we learned together and i think that's the part people should grow up learning not that money is power uh you know money is to impress people but that money is a tool with which we can help creation beautiful
0: thank you dr bernie all right, you're going to like this question, but um, maybe one or two sentences. How important is having a purpose in business, and what is your purpose? If you could sum it up real quick.
1: No, oh, yeah. Uh, I'm laughing because at many conferences, people would laugh when I say, what's your purpose? <laughs> um, and uh, This is
0: perfect for you, this question. That, yeah.
1: Uh, so you're reminding me of that. But I think, as I said, my purpose is to be God's helper, not to accumulate things, but to be an assistant creator. I am literally now at this time in my life reading the Oxford Bible page by page and and learning from, you know, all the, well, Jesus and Abraham and Moses and others and God because it's a pretty violent book too, uh, when it starts out, <laughs> you know, when you don't agree with each other and you're killing each other and oh, but the message is again, if you use the Bible as a financial direction book, it's to help others, you know, to make it a better place for everybody. and And I always say too, we're all the same color inside. It, it's not, you know, we have different appearances, so you recognize people. Because they always said, if every one of us looked alike, you don't know who the hell you're feeding, <laughs> who the hell you're you know, giving money to. Is that my kid or is that the neighbor's kid? Or is that, who is that? So we are different so we can be recognized, not to be separated. And I love saying to people, I have a photograph of you, And me, and you can't tell which one of us it is. What's it a picture of? And the spiritual people say, oh, picture of our hearts. Yeah. And I love doing that, as I say, when I'm speaking to a black audience. And I say, I have a picture of one of you, and you don't know who it is, you know, or me. And they look at me like, what are you, nuts? (laughs) Um, But once you say that, boom, it hits home with them. So
0: let's remember we're all the same color inside. Wise words. Thank you, Dr. Bernie. And what what would, what would you like to accomplish in the next 10 years or so? Maybe quick sentence or two.
1: Well, to be remembered for helping people and teaching people how to heal. You can't cure everything, but to heal lives and then you'll end up living longer. I might, if I can stay, hold myself together 'Cause I keep thinking about it. I don't mind living to 120 to set a record and show people <laughs> what we're capable of, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm I'm voting for you. Seriously. Like yeah. that that would be awesome because then you really get to make everybody uh, put them in place and say, look, he wasn't crazy after all. He practiced what he preaches. So
1: I am right now I'm
0: 88. And oh I, wow. How did I do that?
1: A lot of things uh, that you know, I'm still driving, mowing the lawn climbing on the roof. Our kids were really nervous a few years ago, but they realized he's not normal. So let him go. (laughs) He's doing all these things. Um, And and it's again, you know, live the sermon. Maybe that's the best way of saying it to people. Live the sermon. And I use people like Helen Keller and others as teachers. I mean, to grow up blind and deaf, And uh, that's probably one of the most important messages from her. Um, And not to be mad at God or at anything else. She was a rich soul, but she said, I've heard of the stars of the rainbows of the play of light on the waves. These I would like to see, but far more than sight. I wish for my ears to be open. The voice of a friend, the imaginations of Mozart. Deafness is darker by far than blindness. So you want to help each other? Listen and i mean it you'll be amazed next time you meet somebody with a problem say oh tell me what's happening and all you say to them for an hour is mm mhm mm while they go on ranting and raving at the end of an hour they'll say to you thank you that's the greatest conversation i've had with anyone you're an enormous help and you haven't said anything this is like
0: my podcast. They've heard <laughs> you just described my podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: But they've heard themselves. Yes. So you get credit for it. So learn to be a good listener. And um, maybe in closing, I had one lady talk to me for two hours and I didn't say a word because she just kept going on and on and on. And at the end of two hours, she said to me, That's the greatest conversation I've ever had with anyone. <laughs> That's and I awesome. knew I'd helped her. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Dr. Brady. Last question. And we're going to wrap it up. Uh, what would you like to be your legacy to the world? What would you like to be your legacy? Maybe one or two sentences.
1: Well, that people remembered me for something I did for them, that I helped them loved them. Like one of our kids gave me the one who said, you don't love me as much years ago. He gave me a cup the other day, uh, that says, thank you. Because I love him. I'm helping him. And I let them know I love them. So if I remembered for loving and helping others, that's fine. And let me add this. That doesn't mean I didn't get angry and yell at them. Because one of them said to me, you're getting a divorce. I said, what are you talking about? You yell a lot. I said, I don't like what's going on in the house with five kids. What's, you know, you're doing? So I raised my voice so you hear me and you stop. But I love you and I love your mother. The noise doesn't mean I don't love you. Why did you ask? Oh, the neighbors are getting divorced and they yelled. So in our family, they learned noise does not mean we don't love you. Hey, and uh, that's something I would say to people. If you're not treated with respect, speak up.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Oh, Bernie.
1: Don't get even speak up.
0: Yeah. Appreciate that, Dr. Bernie. Okay. So we're going to close out now. So Dr. Bernie, any last uh, uh, thoughts on where people can get information about your work or maybe your website? Yeah, I website, Bernie Siegel,
1: S-I-E-G-E-L-M-D.com. And you can go there, look up all the books I've written, uh, messages from me, There's one article called um, Deceiving People Into Health, where you, you really learn about how I lied to people, but in a sense, it had a therapeutic hypnotic effect. So they got well, and especially working with children where they believe you as a doctor. So I would tell them literally a lie and they would go home and do well because they believed in me and the treatment or that an alcohol sponge would numb their skin. Um, And they'd say, why don't the other doctors do that? Um, So the parents thought I was crazy till I trained the parents to
0: deceive their children into health also. Thank you, Dr. Bernie, I appreciate that. All right, folks, we're gonna wrap it up. So you've been watching Dr. Finance Live podcast. This is Dr. Anthony Cornetti-Fourth, also known known as Dr. Finance. Um, If you wanna check out my books, I got the most important lesson i'm sorry start out with the necessity of finance the most important lessons in economics and finance and the survival of the richest my three major books got dr bernie siegel here definitely check out his books he's got a lot of great books and new york times best-selling author so check him out appreciate it we'll see you on the next episode thank you again dr bernie i appreciate it so much sir very honored to have you here I pleasure. thank you sir uh, if you can just hang on just a moment and we'll uh, as i close out the show all right, That's thank fine. you everyone. We'll see, we'll see you next next time. Bye-bye now.